News of the United States government. This is VOA News. I'm Tommy McNeil. Despite mounting criticism, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu spoke on ABC this week and defended his intention to launch a military ground operation in Rafah. That is the border town currently sheltering more than a million Palestinians who say they have nowhere else to go. America's foreign allies have now said that they are watching the presidential race, and they're wondering if there's going to be a bumpy ride ahead for international relations. Russia attacked Ukraine with a barrage of drones. This comes as additional funding for Ukraine's efforts to defend itself against Russia faces hurdles in the U.S. Congress. The Senate has tried to move forward with the bill, but the U.S. House has not and has been stalemated. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has been hospitalized yet again following symptoms pointing to an emergent bladder issue. In a statement, the Pentagon says that Austin was transported by his security detail to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center around 2.20 on Sunday. He has now transferred all of his authorities to the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Kathleen Hicks. He remains in the hospital Austin was diagnosed with prostate cancer back in December, and he does continue to deal with the complications from his treatment. Police say that a woman opened fire with a long gun inside celebrity pastor Joel Olstein's Texas megachurch before she was being, had been gunned down by two off-duty police officers who confronted her. A young child was accompanied by the woman. More at this is VOA News. Former Prime Minister Alexander Stubb has narrowly won Finland's presidential election runoff against the former Foreign Minister Pekka Havisto. As head of state, Stubb's main task will be to steer the Nordic country's foreign and security policy. This, of course, now that it is a member of NATO and it follows Russia's invasion of Ukraine. With over 99% of the votes actually counted, Stubb, who was on the center-right, had received 51.6% of the votes, while Havisto, an independent candidate from the Green Left, got about 48.4%. The 55-year-old Stubb, who was prime minister in 2014 and 2015, will become the 13th president of Finland since the Nordic country's independence from the Russian Empire in 1917. The death toll from a massive landslide that hit a gold mining village in the southern Philippines has risen significantly. Initially, there were reports of about 54 people who are dead and 63 people missing, but the number has now gone up. The landslide hit the mountain village of Masara in Davao de Oro province on Tuesday night after weeks of torrential rains. Provincial government said in a Facebook post that the 54 bodies initially were retrieved and later found the others. It said 32 residents did survive, but they had injuries. Officials have said that among those missing were gold miners waiting in two buses to be driven home when the landslide struck and buried them. More than 1,100 families have been moved to evacuation centers for their safety. 
NATO's leader is warning that former U.S. President Donald Trump is putting the safety of U.S. troops and their allies at risk. The alliance's Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg issued a statement on Sunday after the Republican presidential frontrunner said Russia should be able to do whatever the hell they want to alliance members who don't meet their defense spending targets. Stoltenberg said that the 31 allies are committed to defending each other. Trump's remarks caused deep concern in Poland, which has been under Russian control more often than not since the end of the 18th century. The Polish Prime Minister Donald Tusk called for European NATO members to increase the defense spending. Police say that a woman in a trench coat opened fire with a long gun inside celebrity pastor Joel Osteen's Texas megachurch before she was gunned down by two off-duty police officers. You'll find more at VOANews.com. I'm Tommy McNeil, VOA News. Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Barty in Washington. Today is Tuesday, February 13, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Liberian President Boakai accepts the resignation of his defense minister. General Johnson accordingly tendered his resignation to me earlier today. I have accepted the resignation and thank the general for his sacrificial services, loyalty, and commitment to our country. Malawi removes visa restrictions for travelers from 79 countries. We will hear from the tourism minister. Intervention in Zambia is helping those recovering from alcohol addiction. An alleged M23 bomb sparks anti-Western protests in eastern DRC. Everything started by a rocket from M23 which landed in an IDP camp called Zaina. Uh, this rocket injured eight people and some of them are in a really bad situation. And today is World Radio Day. Those stories, plus our Black History Month presentation, are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Liberian President Joseph Boakai has accepted the resignation of his defense minister days after he was confirmed by the Senate. As Denise Nipson reports from Monrovia, the president's acceptance came during a nationwide address Monday evening. The resignation of Defense Minister General Prince Charles Johnson followed days of sustained protests by army wives accompanied by real blacks at major points across the country, including the Rabbers International Airport, which attracted the attention of Liberians and development partners. General Johnson served as the chief of staff of the army for the past six years during the administration of former President George Weir. The army wives began their protest after the Liberian Senate confirmed Johnson as the new defense minister. They say General Johnson's appointment was not in the interest of the army because he did not ensure better living standards for them. Because of the protest, President Boakai canceled the official ceremony marking Monday's Armed Forces Day. In a nationwide address Monday, President Joseph Boakai explained the women's motives. On Sunday, February 11, I received an audience of wives of some members of the Armed Forces of Liberia 
who had come to express their concerns on several issues. These issues included poor living conditions, high tuition fees for their children, lack of adequate medical care, and low salaries, among others. The women stated their most important demand was the removal of retired General Prince C. Johnson as Minister of Defense. They said their husband had told them that unless General Johnson was removed, there would be no Armed Forces Day celebration. President Bwaka said he had accepted his defense minister's resignation. As a true soldier and a patriot, retired General Johnson, of his own volition, informed us that he would step aside if he were obstacled in order to save the AFL and preserve peace and tranquility in the country. General Johnson accordingly tendered his resignation to me earlier today. I have accepted the resignation and thank the general for his sacrificial services, loyalty, and commitment to our country. The president stressed the importance of protecting the image of the army. We must never tolerate indiscipline and breakdown of order in the armed forces of Liberia. The reconstituted AFL had won the praises and admirations of the entire country for its professionalism and had become a source of national pride for us all. We cannot afford to indulge in anything that will dampen the morale of our soldiers and generate doubt and suspicion. The incident has generated mixed reactions among Liberians. Some believe it shows the enemy is divided, while others think the protests and the government's response may set a by precedent. For VOA's Daybreak Africa, I'm Denise Nipsey in Morovia, Liberia. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, an alleged M23 rebel bombed lander near the Zaina internally displaced people's camp in Sake. A provisional assessment posts the number of seriously wounded at eight. Reporter Al Katanti Sibeti Jaffa in the eastern DRC city of Goma says the M23 position from where the rocket was allegedly launched is said to be in a protector by the United Nations mission in Congo, known as MONUSCO. He tells me that uh, this added fuel to the anti-UN and Western protests that have been going on in the DRC for about two days. Everything started by a rocket from M23, which landed in an IDP camp called Zaina in Sake. Uh, this rocket injured eight people, and some of them are in a really bad situation. They were evacuated in Goma for their caretaking. And then in this evening, started at 6.30, M23 launched new offensives on FRDC position around Sake and fighting still ongoing till now. People in Sake are saying that the city may fall under M23 control. What do you think is behind this anti-U.S. and uh, U.N. demonstrations? There are a lot of anti-U.S. and U.N. demonstrations around the country and especially in the city of Kinshasa. And this is because Western countries are appointed by Congolese people to keep quiet on the situation of GRC, which is qualified as a genocide by Congolese people. And this situation in Sake can grow up this aggressivity of Congolese people against MONUSCO 
and the foreign countries because last Wednesday, after FRDC succeeded to chase out M23 from Sake, it was reported that a group of M23 fighter was hiding in Monusco camp in Kioli mountain. And this was not confirmed or even denied by Monusco. But according to local of Sake and also Wazalendo people, M23 was in the Monusco camp or close to a Monusco camp and Monusco was blocking Wazalendo or FRDC to attack or to approach that camp so that they can remove M23 from that. And the rocket which landed in Sake today came from that position of M23 in Kiuli mountain. So this situation, we don't know if tomorrow people will consider this, but if they consider this, even here in Goma, maybe some demonstration because yesterday the governor of North Kivu didn't allow locals to demonstrate against Monisco regarding this situation. Because of the general security situation of the zone, the governor of North Kivu didn't allow. But if people decide to demonstrate and to attack one more time Monusco and all representatives of foreign countries like US, UK and France, it will be a number thing situation in Goma and all the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. How do you think the people in the camp are reacting to the situation and what preparations are they making in the event that the camp falls? A lot of people in the territory of Masisi afraid the, the war, leaving their village in the direction of Sake, as Sake is the major city in Masisi, close to the city of Goma. But now, as Sake is also a target of enemy, fighting is in the middle of the city of Sake, these people are exposed. That's reporter Al-Katanti Sabiti Jaffa speaking with us from the eastern DRC city of Goma. South Africa will send 2,900 troops as part of its contribution to the Southern African Development Community SADC force deployed against armed groups in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. According to Reuters, the 16-member regional organization SADC approved the mission in May to help Congo, the world's top supplier of cobalt and Africa's top copper producer, address instability and deteriorating security in its restive eastern region. Last Friday, Malawi removed visa restrictions for travelers from 79 countries, including citizens from the Southern African Development Community, SADC. Malawi Tourism Minister Vera Kantukule tells me the move was necessary to improve Malawi's competitiveness when it comes to attracting tourists. By waiving the visa, by removing the restrictions on those 79 countries, what we have done as a country is that we have enhanced or improved our competitiveness as far as destination marketing is concerned. Because one of the critical issues that you need to look at when you're talking about tourism is the issue of smooth travel facilitation. And as a country, we have been facing a number of challenges where people were unable to access our country because they couldn't access the visa. They couldn't apply for the visa online. And so what was happening is that compared to our counterparts within the region, Zambia, Zimbabwe, 
Botswana, South Africa, Mozambique. People were going into these countries and Malawi because of those restrictions. So we're being disenfranchised as far as access to our country was concerned, in spite of all the natural endowments that we have as a country. So at the moment, we know that we are hopeful that we have added Malawi as a destination from mainstream destinations like uh, Europe, America, UK, China but also uh, within the African continent as well. So, Minister, why 79 countries and not all the countries? I think some of those countries were already not being required to apply for a visa. So these ones were the ones that we had not yet lifted. We are guided by the law. So the law that was obtaining in this regard was the Immigration Act. The Immigration Act was already recognized in some of the countries. You should know the Immigration Act does not sit with the Ministry of, of Tourism. It sits with the Ministry of Homeland Security because they are the ones that oversee issues of Malawi police service, immigration and Malawi prisons. So the Immigration Act falls under them. But we are the beneficiaries of this act. As you know, Minister, just lifting visa restriction alone does not guarantee tourism and trade. Other factors uh, like good infrastructure and political stability, where does Malawi fit when it comes to these indicators? Number one, I want to say that the lifting of the visas, it also does enhance our position on the African Visa Openness Index, whose primary objective is to support the implementation of the African Union's Agenda 2063. However, over and above that, you are very right to say infrastructure development, direct flights into Malawi and all of that. But I think I've always argued to say we are not going to sit here and say, you know, because we don't have direct flights into Malawi, then we're not going to uh, promote our country. Our Ministry of Tourism at the moment, we are, we are being guided by two key functions. Number one, we are doing product development. Number two, we are doing destination marketing, which is exactly what, we have, what I'm doing even with you right now. We want to say, come to Malawi and you're going to see these things. Where you have one of the largest water bodies in the, in the world, but has over 1,000 species of fish, more than any other water body in the world. And the Lake Malawi is the only lake in the world, or the only water body in the world that provides the space for snorkeling, self-snorkeling. And I think one of the issues that has been overshadowed or overlooked when you talk about our country is the issue of peace. Malawi has never had war. We are a peaceful nation. We are called the warm heart of Africa for a reason. Even though we may not have a state-of-the-art roads, we may not have direct flights into Malawi. Our people are warm. Our country is very peaceful. And these are the things that we are talking about. So what we are saying now is that infrastructure development at the moment is at the core of what we are doing as government. So yes, I do agree. But I want to tell you that government at the moment is coordinated towards providing the ATM strategy that will look at all of these issues that you're saying, the infrastructure development, connectivity, security, and everything else that has to be done for us to position Malawi as, as a destination of choice as far as tourism is concerned. Vera Kantukule is Malawi's tourism minister. She was speaking with us from the capital, Lilongwe. You're listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm James Bott in Washington. Today is Tuesday, February 13. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The World Health Organization says that in Zambia, over 70% of men and over 30% of women are drinking too much, too often. Some non-profit organizations are intervening to help those on the path to recovery from alcohol addiction. Kathy Short reports from Lusaka, Zambia. 
49-year-old businessman Bellington Shanzi started drinking beer casually as a teenager, but he says he quickly became addicted to alcohol. My family and relationships were broken because um, it would lead to, you know, little time with, um, I'm a married man, uh, little time with family, little time with even, um, you know, your own siblings and everything, you shun everything, your budget is distorted, in the end your life just becomes, you know, centered on alcohol. You become selfish. Bellington has just completed a three-month alcohol recovery program at Serenity Wellness Center, which focuses on providing medicine and therapeutic solutions. The program costs $245 per month over a three-month period. This price tag is beyond the reach of most Zambians, where the average salary is between $300 and $350 per month. The fees cater for logistics like food, medicines, and administrative costs for alcohol recovery participants during the program. For those who cannot afford it or are also grappling with mental health issues, the center offers some free services. Kapamwech Kontwe is Serenity's founder and executive director. He says part of the problem is that alcohol is cheap and easy to get in Zambia. Uh, almost every shopping mall has alcohol, at, almost in, in every shop. So people have this opportunity where they are able to buy at any point, at every small instance, every corner in Zambia as a, as a spot where alcohol is being sought. Chikonto says that an average of seven people turn up for help at Serenity every day and he says his center is helping about 60% of the people that go through the program while 40% relapse. 38-year-old Musonda Kahenya also says he has completed his alcohol recovery program. He has been sober for a few months now. Because of the heavy drinking, I started missing from work, I started missing days from work, yeah, losing jobs. Then later on, started having a lot of bills in uh, bars. Yeah, you know, I overdrink what I can afford. <laughs> Yeah, so it became quite a burden, especially on my family members. In 2018, the country enacted a national alcohol policy that sets opening hours for bars and restricts sales in markets and shopping malls. It prohibits consumption by people under the age of 18. But Chikonto says that policy isn't being enforced and points to media reports indicating that 42% of alcohol consumers are between the ages of 13 and 15. Chikonto says his organization is working closely with the government to urgently fine-tune the national alcohol policy. So, like in like in other policies, um, we need to sensitize uh, the population who face on the existence of this policy, but as well as on the content. Zambia's health minister, Sylvia Masebo, told VOA that they recognize the problem and says the government will prosecute those ignoring the national alcohol policy. But activists say that's not enough and are calling for tougher measures like fast-tracking the prosecution of offenders to send a clear message. Kathy Short, VOA News, Lusaka, Zambia. Today, February 13, is World Radio Day. It was adopted by the United Nations General Assembly in 2012 as a UN International Day. The United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, says radio remains one of the most dependable and widely utilized forms of media in an era marked by the dizzying speed of technological innovation. Reporter Rita Jirabwe, duo asked some Liberians to share their views about radio. 
I'm Clifford Kuna Jr. Academic Dean, B Certificate Program at Kakata Road Teacher Training Institute. Going back in history when we were born, we were not really used to modern technology. So we depend on radio and that of television for information dissimulation. So radio has been very key to us getting information across the globe. And uh, given our society, not many people used to the use of like Android phone, we cannot do a radio so easily. My sister Tito from Corway Community. The radio is what we use to get information of what is going on around the world or in the community. For me, I would say I appreciate us using the radio. For example, people that live in the rural area, they don't have access to internet, phone, and some of them don't even have internet. So they use the radio to get information. So radio will always be important to us. My name is Victor Kamara from Ampakli. Radio and social media, they are both important. But I think radio, right now, the people pay more attention to the radio than social media. Although this is the 21st generation, but we say got elderly people that, that don't know how to use their smartphones, and so they prefer to turn on the radio and get direct access to state information. My name is Marie Colley. I'm 53 years old. Radio is very important. We do not know about the Facebook business. Even you put something on our test screen, say, I can see a good set, but the radio, when I listen to the radio, I can feel fun. Some of them want to fight with no hard radio, but when people put a radio on, we'll go sit down the air. Radio can make you forget about some of your problems. And radio can also tell you things that are happening. So radio is very important. My name is Lawson G. Lawson. Cochin Community Law Magnification Number One. I know radio will be very important because it gives us all the data and informs us of the day to day happening. My name is Joseph and Collywood, speaking from Montserrat. Radio will always be important because now you're able to afford to buy a smartphone. So by listening to radio, you'll be updated of everything that happening around the world. <laughs> Some Liberians with their views about radio on this World Radio Day today, February 13. They spoke with reporter Rita Gilabudor. It's time now for our Black History Month and African History presentation for today, February 13. This morning, instead of our usual daily facts, viewers Carol Van Dam interviews National Public Radio Weekend Edition host Aisha Roscoe. She has just released a book entitled HBCU Made, a celebration of the black college experience. HBCUs are historically black colleges and universities. And in the U.S., some were created shortly, you know, before the Civil War. Many were created in the aftermath of the Civil War, um, basically to give black people a space in which they could get higher education in the U.S. because they were shut out of all of the other institutions due to segregation, discrimination, all of that. Many of the earlier schools would be, you know, training in agriculture or nursing colleges or things of that nature, but it was a way to give black people um, a space to get education that they could not get otherwise at predominantly white institutions. Now that was the beginning of HBCUs and now you have choices. You have lots and lots and lots of choices, but you still chose an HBCU. So why personally did you choose one? And and again, why Howard University here in Washington, D.C.? 
Yeah, I mean, so I think it's a it's a kind of a comp. I don't say complicated, but it's for me like I had a personal journey. But I think the reason why people often still choose HBCUs, even though you have a choice, is because we live in a world where race still plays a very big, prominent role in 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 the U.S. And so what I found in putting together the book is that HBCUs can offer a sort of a safe haven for young black scholars where they can just go to an environment. They don't have to say, okay, I'm here and I'm black, but you know, I got here and I, I didn't sneak in through the back door. I deserve to be here. There are all these questions that can come up being a black person in a space where everyone looks different than you. And it's not that you're not challenged, but you're not, you're challenged just to be the best that you can be, not to prove that you're capable of thought or prove that you're capable of intelligence. And so it's a very different environment. That's National Public Radio Weekend Edition host Aisha Roscoe. She was speaking with my colleague Carol Van Dam about her new book entitled HBC. HBCU made a celebration of the black college experience. And that's it for this Tuesday, February 13th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending your morning with us. For more Africa news and feature, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa team, I am James Barty in Washington, wishing that you will have an amazing Tuesday. You know, we are people too. We like the birds and the bees.